good morning to you. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Three minutes now after 8 o'clock. Thanks for joining us. In the headlines, Israel and Hamas agree to a new truce. The U.S. economy shows renewed strength. The S&P 500 closes above 2,000 for the first time. Mainland developers continue to slash prices. And Warren Buffett defends the Burger King tax deal that he is a part of. So lots to get through this morning. We'll tell you all about it as we progress on S&P 500 at 2000. A little food for thought here to get us started. Look, markets are about earnings, about fundamentals. And, you know, we really don't spend a lot of time thinking about these, if you like, artificial levels. That's Tobias Lefkowitz from Citibank. There's a psychological class before the right. retail investor and the individual investor sees it and says, I'm missing, I'm missing out on something. Right. So it's more of a sentiment factor. But does it really change the way you should think about investing? The answer is no. So no big deal about S&P 500 at 2000. And Mr. Lefkowitz also had some thoughts about why stocks and bonds seem to be telling different stories. It's more about, do I buy a 1% BUN, do I buy a 1% JGB, do I buy a 2.4% Spanish yield, or do I buy a 2.4% U.S. yield? And I think most people say, you know, they're, they're, they're very pro-Yankee at that point. So we'll have all that market stuff coming up a little bit later and tell you about the mergers. Uh, Burger King moving its headquarters to Canada. Warren Buffett taking a little bit of heat. So we'll try to explain that. Uh, guests this morning include Andrew Kosser of DZ Bank on the ECB and markets. Simon Galpin of Invest Hong Kong will be with us to talk about this year's Start Me Up Hong Kong Venture Program. And Mark Sims of the startup Go and Live will be here to reveal his remedy for the clutter and small size of Hong Kong apartments. But just now, as we get uh, started, let's take a look at Asian markets. Money talks. So let's look at the Asian markets. Uh, as we uh, see in uh, in Japan, uh, the Nikkei is up 35 points. Uh, that's just a quarter of a percent at 15,556. The Australian market is higher. So is Seoul. Seoul up about eight points, so four-tenths of one percent. Anyway, you get the picture. Green numbers on the screens. Risk is still on, and people are buying into these markets. The dollar-yen is 104.12. So that's the dollar uh, continuing its ascent against the yen and the euro. The dollar up against uh, the yen. So that's that's good for the Japanese equity, equity market. And the euro is trading at 1.3168. We've moved down from about 136 over the past couple of weeks. And we'll talk to Andrew Kosser about that in a minute. Also, the pound, 12 Hong Kong dollars and 82 cents. What about gold? Gold has not been very strong of late, but it did pick up a little bit overnight. 1283 an ounce now. And oil prices, 102.5. Uh, Brent crude, one barrel there trading for 102.50. On Wall Street, uh, stocks were up, sending the S&P 500 right up to that 2000 level we told you about. Data showed the biggest ever jump in durable goods orders. And there was also a big rise in consumer confidence. So the S&P was up 0.1% at 2000, right on the button. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 29 points at 17,106. Just about all the sectors have been rallying, as we hear from Mike Regan at Bloomberg. 
Most of the main industry groups have, you know, in fact, set new records, uh, released multi-year highs. Financials are sort of the outlier, you know, still 40% below. 40% below? Below their peak in, you know, they peaked in uh, February of 2007, about eight months before the rest of the market. And, you know, we all know what happened after that, a huge drop. Um, Financials have really led the rally over the last five years since the bear market's low, but still, you know, gives you a sense of how much room they still have to to make that. How much room they still have have to go to get back where they were. U.S. durable goods orders up 23% in July, and bookings surged for commercial aircraft. An air show in the U.K. helped drive a 318% jump in plane orders. That's the biggest jump since January of 2011. So let's look at consumer confidence. Um, it has rebounded quite a bit here of late. The consumer confidence index now 92.4 in August, and that's the highest since October of 2000. All right, we'll take a little bit closer look now at the bond market. Uh, we see the yield on the 10-year right around 2.4%. So really not much movement in bonds. Uh, yields still staying low. A little bit more here from Jeff Lewis at TIG. If you look at retail investors and their participation in the bond market, it's not so much in treasuries, it's not so much in the benchmarks. It's They have really can, been sort of taking little steps into credit products, sure. into investment-grade corporate Gotta bonds. Got to find yield somewhere. Into high-yield corporate bonds. You know, you look at the high-yield indices, what the yields are. They're not terribly compelling when you look at them in the, over the long term in terms of what those numbers have been. And so I'm a little concerned that the retail guy, when rates start to go up, and that puts a little bit of pressure on those credit on those credit sectors that you might see the the retail guy kind of running for the hills and maybe creating a little bit of an issue. So he's very worried about you if you have bought a lot of bonds, particularly with some leverage uh, to get a juicy yield. Uh, he's a little bit worried about what might happen when rates go up. And we get a little bit more here from Tobias Lefkowitz uh, to explain why bond yields are so low when stock prices are so high. What's going on in the Treasury market to a great degree is the competition of yield globally. It's not really telling you much about domestic economic prospects. It's nice to have Yellen and company tell you we're not going to rush to raise rates, but it's more about do I buy a 1% BUN, do I buy a 1% JGB, do I buy a 2.4% Spanish yield, or do I buy a 2.4% U.S. yield? And I think most people say, you know, they're, they're, they're very pro Yankee at that point. So that's Tobias Lefkowitz at City. Let's say good morning to Andrew Kosser, Chief Market Strategist, Capital Markets Asia for DZ Bank. Andrew, good morning. Good morning to you. Well, it's good to have you. Uh, good to have you with us uh, on the program as usual. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ECB and the possibility for QE. That was one of the things that juiced up the markets a lot yesterday. But before we get to that, uh, just generally speaking, how do you feel about uh, investing uh, at the moment? You feel the mood is still very good. I think the overall mood for investors at the moment is very constructive. You have central bank policies which are favourable for investors. Certainly in the States, the Federal Open Markets Committee is not rushing to raise interest rates anytime soon. The European Central Bank is in the position where it needs to think about an easier policy rather than a tighter policy. And the Bank of England is also not rushing to tighten its policy. Bank of Japan, we all know, three arrows policy is going to be staying with a lax monetary outlook for quite some time yet. So for the investors, things are looking relatively good at the moment. But I think with these heady levels in some markets, perhaps one should consider starting to be rather more selective than just shotgun approach in one's investing. 
Andrew, if you could get a little closer to the mic, see how I'm sort of kissing my mic here like that. If you get up about a fist away, it'll, it'll sound a lot better and you'll sound a lot ballsier on, on the radio, if we can say that. Uh, um, so you're not too worried about the end of the taper? I mean, this is something, this is something that a lot of people think uh, hasn't had much of an impact so far. Um, investors seem to have, have accepted that the, the bond buying program by the Fed is going to come to an end. Interest rates will eventually go up and they're not too bothered by it. But at some point, won't it hit? It will hit at some point, but the thing is, the Fed is in no rush to tighten rates at the moment. They've made that very clear. And when they do, they will do it in gradual steps, probably starting in late spring, early summer next year. So it's not going to be an aggressive interest rate tightening cycle that we saw, for example, for those that remember the 1993-1994 era, where the bond market sold off a long way in a very short space of time. They don't want to repeat that mistake makes me nervous that everybody's so comfortable right now. I mean, I, I get it. I understand that growth is coming back in the U.S. And now you've got this uh, possibility of QE in Europe. That seems to be good for markets. Uh, but there are always exogenous events out there, something that could surprise and something that could really upset the apple cart. Uh, are you worried about that? Is there anything out there that uh, you think could change the mood dramatically? There are a number of things that could change the mood dramatically. The situation in Ukraine could get quickly and rapidly more serious with more bloodshed. Uh, there are peace talks going on in Minsk at the moment, but if those don't succeed, then perhaps Vladimir Putin might be tempted to try his chances a little bit more aggressively in the conflict in Ukraine. And the situation in Iraq could turn for the worse if IS makes further progress towards Baghdad and then is able to start threatening global oil or the major oil supply fields in the south of Iraq. So you think if we see a lot more violence, um, then, you know, this this rally could come to a close. Uh, the geopolitical, even though we've rallied every time there's been a bit of a sell off, uh, one of these times uh, it could be more serious. It could indeed be more serious. And within Europe, uh, we've seen recently that political risk, and I'm thinking of France at the moment, where the government was reshuffled in the last 48 hours, uh, that situation seems to be not causing the markets distress. But if the French government fails to pass its budget this autumn and there's a general election called, then we have political risk in a key European country. Most of the analysts who talk about Europe say that um, you, you really need to see structural reform, that labor is still too high. Now, one thing that you're seeing is the international price of labor is going down with the euro going down. Do you forecast the euro to continue to weaken and does that make Europe more competitive? A lower exchange rate for the euro against its major trading competitors does make the euro more, com more competitive. However, one has to consider that the decline that we've seen in the last several weeks, and I think you alluded to a figure from about 138 down to roughly 133, I think we are now, that's quite a significant move for the currency markets in a relatively short space of time. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more sideways action around the current level. Yes, we're down and, even um, to 131 and change. Uh, is, that, um, is that more about euro weakness than dollar strength? It is indeed about euro weakness. The key factor that's been pushing the euro down in the last few weeks has been the expectation that the ECB will be forced into a quantitative easing strategy sometime probably end of this year, beginning of next year. 
Okay, we've got a lot of earnings uh, out this week. This is the last big week. China Life today, uh, Sino Land as well, Mengyu Dairy. Uh, so there's uh, quite a host of uh, local companies that will be reporting. Uh, for business folks here in, in Hong Kong, looking at these earnings to try to decipher how, you know, how um, strong this market could be, uh, how, how have you seen the earnings? How do you view them? I have to admit that I'm not an equity market specialist. Uh, but even a bond guy would look at, um, you know, would look at the balance sheet and the profits uh, posted by companies uh, to know whether or not to buy bonds in them. And obviously, if you're buying bonds, you've got to be really worried about currencies. I know you're an expert in currencies and bonds. Uh, do you do you not watch earnings? Not to any great extent. Uh, the way that analysts look at uh, equities and the way they look at bonds. Yes, there is some overlap, but it's not looking at exactly the same thing in the same way. Okay. If we set equities aside for the moment, uh, for an investment profile um, in what you do cover, what do you like at the moment? Well, given that the European Central Bank is making noises about quantitative easing, that means they go out into the market and buy bonds. And in Europe, the corporate bond market, well, the ECB, if it does quantitative easing, is probably looking at figure of about 1 trillion euro, which is an enormous amount of money. And they would probably want to put some of that money into European corporate bonds, some of it into European asset-backed securities. But because both of those markets are relatively relatively small, at about a total of 5 trillion each, um, some people who hold those bonds won't want to sell, they'll probably have to look at government bonds as well. But I think the possibility for further spread narrowing and therefore price increases in European corporate bonds and high-quality asset-backed securities is still there and looking good for a little while yet. Let's talk for a quick minute about the French uh, government reshuffle. What's really happening there? A power struggle within the left wing and the right wing of the Socialist Party, which the right wing has currently won. The current Prime Minister, Monsieur Valls, is a centre-right within the Socialist Party, a social democrat, and he has forced out the harder left uh, industry minister, Monsieur Montebourg, and replaced him with somebody who is more to his own way of thinking. The question is now, will the hard-left faction of the Socialist Party start aggressively voting against the government policy, or will they merely sometimes abstain when it comes to key votes in Parliament? Taking an overall look at uh, Europe, can we just simply say austerity measures aren't working in the Eurozone? They're not working very well, it has to be admitted. The fact that just about all countries are imposing austerity at the same time is imposing a significant drag on aggregate demand within the Eurozone bloc. And that is forcing the growth rate to be very, very slow or non-existent for quite a few countries. Yeah, okay. Um, the impact on us uh, seems to be um, somewhat um, muted. I'm not sure whether or not, I mean, Europe is a bigger trading partner, I would imagine, uh, Europe-wide than even the U.S., uh, but it doesn't seem to have dramatically affected trade flows here, has it? It hasn't affected trade flows dramatically for Asia as a whole, although they are down on where they were five, six years ago. But what we've seen, if one looks at the data a bit more carefully, is that flows within Asia have tended to replace flows to Europe. Okay. Um, on a technical basis, can you tell us what still needs to be done by Mario Draghi to start QE? 
well, one thing is to convince the Bundesbank that it's necessary. Okay, so that, that's not technical, that's political, so that's one big thing. Yeah. Um, but um, the negative interest rate policy and the quantitative easing, uh, in your view, is that going to do to European stock markets what QE has done to the S&P 500 and the Dow? We're already seeing mere hint of QE giving the same positive impetus to European stock markets that the Dow and the S&P have seen from the Fed doing it. So I think there's little doubt that the extra money coming into the economy in Europe, would, some of it would find its way into the asset markets, including equities. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. We've got Simon Galpin coming up in just a moment. Uh, so thank you, Andrew. Andrew Kosser, Chief Market Strategist, Capital Markets Asia at DZ Bank. to go back into this Burger King story a little bit. Um, shares of Canada's Tim Hortons added 8.5% to 8105 in trading in North America. They rallied 19% yesterday, so that's a whopping you know, 27, 28% gain for Tim Hortons. Burger King slid 4.3%, uh, reversing an earlier 2.5% gain. The hamburger chain actually had rallied 20% yesterday after saying that it was in talks with Tim Hortons and Burger King would then move its headquarters to Canada. Warren Buffett is a part of this deal. He's loaned $3 billion to the private equity firm that owns Burger King to get this deal done. And Warren Buffett is buying preferred shares, getting a 9% yield on $3 billion. So that's Warren Buffett pulling in $270 million a year just on that loan. So pretty solid. A couple of comments here. First, we hear from Jeff Lewis at TIG about this concept of tax inversion. To make everybody think, well, maybe if we have the highest corporate tax rates in the world and we're driving our companies out, maybe we should be looking at the structure of our tax system in terms of why do corporations pay taxes. A lot of people have suggested as an, as an alternative that we do away with corporate taxes as well as doing away with capital gains. So where you have one rate for income and you don't tax the income at the corporate level, it actually is probably roughly revenue neutral. It may be actually revenue positive, And it gets rid of a lot of incentives to do all sorts of things that are not necessarily productive. So that's Jeff Lewis, TIG. He'd like to see reform of the tax structure. And here's a novel idea from Bloomberg's Matt Miller. I would go a step energy. further and get rid of the income tax as well. Just, no, I'm, I'm being serious because uh, why penalize someone for success? You know, w while they're uh, producing for the society, why not just tax people on consumption and then a huge death tax that's unavoidable? You know, to kind of level the playing field and stop these sort of buildups of stagnant wealth. So an interesting idea. They laughed at him because they thought he was joking, but he turned out to be serious. Well, the time is now 21 minutes after 8 o'clock. This year's Start Me Up Hong Kong Venture Program attracted some 550 entities from 47 countries. So 550 entries from all those entities in 47 countries. That's up significantly, by the way, from last year. And it shows that Hong Kong is making inroads, this group says, in fostering a startup culture. Let's find out from Simon Galpin from Invest Hong Kong, the Director General of Investment uh, Promotion there. Simon, good morning. Good morning. That's a pretty good haul, 550 entries. Um, are you excited about that? We're very excited. I mean, it's a very sharp increase on last year. Last year was the first year that we held the venture program. Uh, this year, through social media and through word getting out that Hong Kong's got this growing startup ecosystem, we've seen a, a very sharp increase in the number of entries and from a very diverse group of countries and economies, 47 countries, as you say. 
Is this something that's happening kind of on the sly that people aren't so aware of? Well, I think, you know, the fact is that Hong Kong has a very rapidly growing startup ecosystem, but it's only happened in the last couple of years. That's when the real momentum started to build up. And it has taken people by surprise. It's taken us a bit by surprise at Invest Hong Kong. And I think word hasn't really got out there that we've got large numbers of founders and entrepreneurs moving to Hong Kong to start brand new businesses. And what sort of businesses are they starting? Really, really diverse group of businesses. I mean, we've got a lot of uh, founders that are starting businesses in things like e-commerce and e-retailing. We've also got a good cluster of uh, financial service technology companies, fintech companies. And we're starting to see, you know, companies coming in that are doing prototyping for products, uh, particularly in things like wearable devices. What about uh, 3G printing? Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's an, another very important area, and you know we've got uh, a company that's produced the uh, they claim the the world's cheapest 3D printer here in Hong Kong. So it's quite an exciting landscape, as I mentioned. I think that uh, not so many people know about it. You were looking to hire a director of, of Start Me Up Hong Kong. I have to say I'm sorry that I haven't followed it closely enough to know if you've actually named that person yet. And how was the response? Well, you know, we've uh, we've created a very small team of just two people to look at the startup community and the support that we can provide to, to starters, startups and founders. Uh, and we've, uh, we've uh, gone through a recruitment exercise. Two people will be joining the department uh, next month. One will start in the middle of the month and one at the end of September. And we look forward to announcing the names of those people uh, at that time. Okay, maybe you can come back on this program and announce it. That would be great. We'd love to break that story because it is exciting. It's wonderful to see um, companies get started. Are you seeing in any way that these are companies being started by young people or is that also right across the board? Well, it, it is across the board. I think that the founders and entrepreneurs in Hong Kong tend to be a little bit older. Um, many of them have worked in, uh, in banks, in financial institutions, and now uh, are deciding to follow their dream with their savings and, and start completely brand new businesses, often in, in unrelated fields to the, to the first part of their career. Okay, so tell us more about what you do to help them. Well, you know, we've created this platform called Start Me Up Hong Kong, which really pulls together not only the, 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 the guys from the public sector, but also a lot of the private sector support organizations. And as well, you come know, on, you said you got two people in it. You know, how much help can two people give? Well, the two people, their job is to get out and, and network with all the, the, the co-work spaces and the incubators in Hong Kong. But then we have eight sector teams. And depending on the, the business that the startup's in, we've got, you know, people in those teams that can provide hand, hand-to-hand ongoing support for those companies. Are there any tax incentives that you can offer um, these small startups? Well, you know, people come to Hong Kong because uh, tax is, is very simple, very low and very predictable. So, you know, there isn't really a need to offer incentives to startups. Um, if people are looking to, uh, to start research and development type projects in Hong Kong, then of course there are matching grants that, that are available for startups in those areas. Is there much of a VC industry here to help uh, people out? It's growing. I mean, you know, the, the whole reason why we're getting behind it is we would love to encourage not only more foreign founders and startups to, to come into Hong Kong, but we want to encourage local entrepreneurs and local graduates to go into startups. And then the third pillar is to really encourage many of the high net worth individuals that we have here in Hong Kong to become angel investors and to, to support the movement. So these entries that you got, um, what happens to them? I mean, do they, is there some sort of um, award that goes out to uh, the top ones or what do you do with these entries? 
Well, we've got a number of people that are looking and, and evaluating the entries. Um, we'll then bring uh, 40 semi-finalists to a, to a judging panel. And then we have a number of prizes. We have prizes for you know, companies and startups that are really at the early concept stage, and we have other prizes for for the the, the growth stage startups. I want and to be on that judging panel. Put my name down. <laughs> okay, just right here, Brian Curtis. <laughs> Fair so enough. Tick, tick that box. You got one judge already. <laughs> well, we're looking for judges. So that's very good. But we've also got a couple of extra prizes that that we feel are quite important to Hong Kong. So we've got a a prize for financial services technology companies, one for smart city technology, uh, and we've got one for or uh, data analytics as well. Do you think banks are starting to get worried about these small financial tech firms? Well, I think the fact is that, you know, we're a leading financial se- uh, service center. And so we should have these. So we should have these, yeah. And, you know, fintech isn't necessarily just a challenge to the, the existing players. It can also uh, provide, uh, you know, new technology that can help uh, enhance their service offering. Fintech, that's a kind of a cool name, but it, it, it makes me think of um, sort of uh, shark hunters that um, use technology uh, as well. Um, that was a bad joke. Sorry, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't laugh. Um, yeah, let, let me uh, ask you about um, the biggest challenges that, that these startups face, because obviously rents would be one <clears throat> and high cost of labor, but one presumes that they're finding ways to get around that. Well, you know, the the perception of rents is often more of a challenge than the reality. I mean, as you may know, uh, three years ago, we had just three co-work spaces in Hong Kong, and two of them were government uh, government funded. Today, just three years later, we have more than 32 co-work spaces. So people are opening up these uh, support mechanisms right across Hong Kong. Um, and because we've seen such a big increase in the supply of, uh, of these co-work spaces, re- rents are not too bad. You can rent a seat in a co-work space for less than 2000 Hong Kong dollars a month. Do you work closely with Cyberport? We do. We do. Cyberport and Science Park are, are partners of ours. But we're also very encouraged by the fact that the private sector is really getting into this space and supporting the startups too. Is that right? Is the private sector uh, coming in uh, to to offer help? Absolutely. I mean, uh, for give, me the, all, well, give me one good example. Well, you've got you've got companies like Cocoon. You've got uh, Simon Squibb's company uh, mm. that's doing an awful lot of work here. That's called Nest. You've got a lot of uh, big accounting firms that are supporting us and offering prizes to the startups. People like KPMG and Orangefield are getting in on this. So you know, there's really quite a a lot of interest amongst big corporates as well as these co-work spaces. Okay, thanks very much, Simon. Uh, very appreciative of you coming in. Uh, we should get you on the radio more to tell this story because it's a nice success story for Hong Kong. Many thanks to Simon Galpin, uh, Director General of Investment Promotion at Invest Hong Kong. All right, let's take a look at markets as we go out for this half hour. Uh, looking at uh, green numbers here, the Nikkei is up 62 points at 15,583. In Australia, the main index is up six points. In Seoul, the Kospi is up five. That's a quarter of a percent at 2073. Dollar yen 104.15, the euro's at $1.31, so a very weak euro as uh, we mentioned earlier coming from 138 to 131 just a few weeks for that. The RMB 616, so the fixing rate higher, but the yen trades around 621 and the Australian dollar at 93.16 cents. The news coming up shortly. So the weather.
still showery conditions expected tomorrow. Today, mainly cloudy with showers and some isolated thunderstorms. The maximum temperature should be 31, 31 Celsius. What is that? 88 Fahrenheit. Very hot day. And as we mentioned, showers easing off in the next few days, although they'll be with us tomorrow. Stay tuned. The news is next. Here's Samantha Butler. Three people, including two young boys, have died in a fire at a flat in Kuantong. Janice Wong reports. The fire broke out around 3 o'clock this morning at a flat in Cholok House at Choping Estate, Kuantong. The victims include a 33-year-old woman and two boys aged 5 and 2. A man and an 8-month-old girl have been taken to hospital, with the baby said to be in a critical condition. Neighbours say the man, who's 53, escaped from the flat despite suffering burns and was trying to extinguish the blaze with a fire hose. Fire crew rescued the baby and took 20 minutes to extinguish the flames. A charred air conditioning unit also fell from the 20th floor flat. The fire services department says the blaze is not thought to be suspicious. 120 residents had to be evacuated. The Standing Committee of the National People's Congress is expected to come up with a draft resolution on Hong Kong's political reform later today. That's the word from local delegates to the National Parliament, who say members of the Standing Committee generally agree that changes should be made to the way Hong Kong elects its chief executive in 2017. Local deputies have been pushing for conservative changes, such as a high nomination threshold for CE candidates and no change to the composition of the Legislative Council in 2016. Professor Simon Young from the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law gave his thoughts on what to expect. I wouldn't be surprised if if information is leaked. Uh, I mean, we've already heard a lot about uh, what what might be uh, contained in, in the decision. Um, I, I, would there be surprises? Uh, I think we're still hopeful. Uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what, uh, how much detail they're going to go into. Uh, it may well be that they realize that uh, if they, the less, the less they say, uh, the, you know, the greater confidence uh, the people of Hong Kong will have. A report into abuse of children in a North England town has concluded that 1,400 children were sexually exploited over a 16-year period. It outlines rape, trafficking and severe mental and physical abuse involving children as young as 11 and says the situation in the town of Rotherham was made clear to local authorities and police on three separate occasions. The report also says authorities refused to acknowledge that the abusers were mainly from the town's Pakistani community. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Very good morning to you, 833. This is Money for Nothing, business and finance in the first 30 minutes, and money and politics in the second half. And we'll also be speaking with Mark Sims, the chief executive officer of Go and Live. He has a very interesting startup himself about doing business in Hong Kong, and it is quite uh, groundbreaking. I think you should stay tuned and listen for that interview. But let's get started with our look at the news in depth now. The Standing Committee of the National People's Congress is expected 
expected to come up with a draft resolution today on Hong Kong's political reform. That's the word from Hong Kong delegates to the national parliament. They say that there's a general consensus among members of the standing committee that changes should be made to the way that we elect our chief executive in 2017. The local deputies have been saying that they would like to see conservative reforms, including a high nomination threshold for chief executive and no change at all to the composition of the Legislative Council in 2016. RTHK's Priscilla Ung reports. Although they can't vote on the SAR's political future, the 12 Hong Kong delegates said they have been telling members of the Standing Committee in Beijing how much Hong Kong people want universal suffrage in 2017. Legislator Ma Feng Kwok said after attending a small group discussion that he had expressed support for the chief executive's report to Beijing, saying it had accurately and comprehensively reflected the views of Hong Kong people on the territory's democratic development. He called on the Standing Committee to set a clear and concrete framework in areas such as the nomination threshold for future CE candidates in order to prevent a never-ending debate on the issue. Mr. Ma said it is only reasonable for future chief executive hopefuls to get the endorsement of at least half the nominating committee because their right to name candidates should be exercised collectively. Another delegate, Chen Wing Ki, meanwhile, told standing committee members that there is no universal standard for democracy and that political development in Hong Kong should be conducted in accordance with the one country, two systems principle, while taking into account concerns over national security. Maria Tam, who is leading the 12-member delegation, said there is a general consensus among standing committee members that electoral changes should be made to give Hong Kong one person, one vote for the chief executive election in 2017. For his part, legislator Ip Kwok Kim said he hopes the standing committee will accept the chief executive's suggestion of not imposing any changes changes to the formation of the Legislative Council in 2016. Further discussions will be held on Thursday before members decide whether or not to endorse the committee's decision on Sunday. Priscilla Ung reporting. Well, if the NPC does come up with a draft resolution on reform here today, will the news actually be announced? Mike Weeks asked Professor Simon Young from the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law, who has been closely following the meetings. I wouldn't be surprised if if information is leaked, uh, I mean, we've already heard a lot about uh, what, what might be uh, contained in, in the decision. Um, I, I, will there be surprises? Uh, I think we're still hopeful. Uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what, uh, how much detail they're going to go into. Uh, it may well be that they realize that uh, if they, the, less, the less they say, uh, the, you know, the greater confidence uh, the people of Hong Kong will have. So you think the uncertainties regarding that, that they might just throw this back as uh, uh, for more negotiation, hopefully? Yeah, hopefully they'll simply uh, leave it at very general statements, uh, statements of principle uh, rather than uh, detailed uh, design uh, limitations uh, so that there's still room for negotiation. Otherwise, if you go into too much detail, uh, then uh, it'll, see, it'll be very clear uh, come next week uh, that uh, no, no compromise will be possible. Were you surprised that C.Y. Leung yesterday came out with a statement saying the international, an international standard of democracy does not exist in the basic law? Uh, well, most certainly. I mean, this is an issue that uh, not only the pan-democrats, but other academics and others have said, uh, particularly in the legal community, that it's quite clear that international standards are relevant uh, because uh, within the basic law itself, Article 39 
says that the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights uh, shall be implemented. And that covenant uh, says a lot about uh, you know, what uh, uh, universal suffrage and, and the right to vote and to be elected means. Specifically, what does it say with regard to elections? Look, it doesn't say uh, a lot in terms of detail, but it, has, it sets certain baselines. And the most important baseline is that your system of universal suffrage must be able to reflect the will of the community, uh, the will of the electorate. Uh, and also, that there shouldn't be any unreasonable uh, restrictions on the right to vote or to be elected. Uh, so those are some uh, basic ideas that have to be in, uh, used to inform uh, this debate. Um, this current uh, discussion about having perhaps a, a majority of the nominating committee support anyone who is to be nominated certainly raises real issues about whether you have a system that reflects the will of the electorate. A 50% threshold, you believe, would not allow the will of the electorate to be reflected then? Yeah, I think there's a real risk, as the pan-democrats have said, uh, that... Um, popular uh, candidates uh, will, not, will be screened out. But I think another risk that hasn't really mentioned is the possibility that you may have no uh, election at all, uh, that uh, your system of nomination with the majority rule could well result in only one candidate being nominated. And the effect of that is to make universal suffrage an illusion. Professor Simon Young from the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Well, environmental groups have demanded the government prosecute villagers in North Lantau. The villagers felled a stand of protected mangroves in the area on Sunday. The wanton act of destruction was in protest at restrictions on the use of their land in the area around Taiho Stream. That was that area was designated as a site of special scientific interest back in 1999. The mangroves will take at least two years to regrow. Paul Zimmerman from Designing Hong Kong says those responsible must be arrested. The government has to make sure that the land gets reinstated, that whoever has done this must be prosecuted. They must be brought to court. The government has to take all their resources and the people can be identified. They're on camera. So the government must arrest them. If they don't arrest them, they are bending over and this criminal behavior will continue. We've had the threats and uh, other places in Tinfu Chai the Han Yukuk was threatening to pollute the, the drinking water. They've been closing down uh, walking paths in Dailong Saiwan. We see this criminal behavior and going against the public by the Han Yukuk and the villagers now uh, repeatedly. And I think that the government had to say, stop, you've gone too far. This is the end of the line. You cannot destroy public rights. Paul Zimmerman. The EOC has removed an officer from its public consultation into changes to discrimination laws with immediate effect. Chief Equal Opportunities Officer Josiah Chok was accused of asking Christians at a church forum to write to the commission to oppose changes that would give legal protection to gay couples. Earlier, R. Ian Pooler asked Labour Party lawmaker Sid Ho for her reaction to the EOC's move. I welcome the move uh, by the Commission because uh, if Mr. Chuk does not believe in the core values and the mission of the EOC, he better resigns from the post, especially from this uh, consultation exercise, because we don't need somebody holding a position in the Commission, but the, at the same time, that could be the, uh, hindering the progress of uh, equal opportunities. And uh, actually, it is more than equal opportunities for the different sexual orientation because this consultation exercise is about 
uh, the expansion of scope of the anti-discrimination laws uh, about uh, racial discrimination and gender discrimination. And I was shocked to the recent news that uh, Mr. Chuk, while the, on the uh, assembly, asked the participant to say no to all of the questions except one. And uh, some of the questions is about uh, whether the EOC should be the given uh, uh, the legal power to the monitor the government's policy and legislative proposal, whether they are uh, in accordance to the international human rights standard. And then another question uh, asked whether pregnant women should be protected during their maternity leave. And, and if Mr. Chuk asked the people to say no to all this, how could we uh, trust that he could uh, promote equal opportunities on all fronts? That's Sid Ho, a member of the gay rights group the Big Love Alliance, as well as a Labour Party lawmaker. To international news now, the French President Francois Hollande has announced details of his new government. He's hoping that the new administration will breathe some life into his policies to restore economic prosperity. Details now from the BBC's Lucy Williamson in Paris. Well, there are three main changes. The posts of economy, education and culture ministers um, were up to be filled and he's filled them as expected with loyalists, um, people he can count on to back him uh, in his policies. And of course, the reason he purged the previous incumbents of those posts was because they did exactly the opposite and felt they couldn't support his economic policies. The the only real um, unexpected face in this new lineup is Emmanuel Macron, who's been given that important role of economy minister. He's a former banker, a former advisor to President Hollande and is seen as pro-business, centre-right, exactly the kind of man the president wants to have in that role. This is about politics too. Um, President Hollande has fought for a long time to bring together the left and, and, and the right wings of his party um, and he's really struggled to do that in the last few months um, he's trying to take the party in a particular direction that he believes is necessary um, cuts for austerity uh, spending on tax cuts for companies, that hasn't gone down well with the left wing of his party so he's tried to get control of the cabinet but in doing that he may well have alienated some of his key allies that he might need in the future to pass key legislation Lucy Lucy Williamson reporting, and the time is now 15 minutes before 9. It's great to have you listening to the program. If you were listening earlier, you heard us chat with Simon Galpin from Invest Hong Kong, and he was talking about the Start Me Up Hong Kong Venture Program that attracted some 500-odd entries from 47 countries. Uh, well, one new startup is uh, called Go and Live, and Mark Sims is the chief executive officer. Hong Kong is a city in need of flexible ideas, he says. Mark, good morning. Good morning. So you're a rather young company, only four months old. Correct. Tell us exactly what Go and Live does. Go and Live is a very, very simple concept. It is valet urban storage by the box or by the item. Um, what that means is we come to you and we collect your stuff in a box or we take your items away um, and we bring them back to you when and where you want them. Um, if I can give an example, uh, if you think about a, uh, a bicycle, um, living environments are very small. In Hong Kong, bikes take up a lot of room. We will store your bike, and if you want to then ride your bike in Sai Kung, for example, we will deliver it to you in Sai Kung so that you can go for your ride and we'll pick it up later. 
My colleague Chris Oliver is also with me for the discussion. Uh, so d- does that mean that you actually uh, – I mean they have to pay for the storage as well. Absolutely. How does that compare with other storage rates? Are you getting a premium or a markup on both the uh, logistics aspect as well as the storage? Okay. Our logistics is designed to break even. Um, and in terms of the storage, you know, we're quite competitively priced. Uh, if you look at your traditional storage model, it is designed to sell or to, to rent you a room, a room that you may not use the entire space of. Uh, so if you have a traditional 4 by 4 uh, square foot unit, there's going to be empty space. In our model, you get a box, it's completely full, you know, it's a, it's a two, uh, three cubic feet area, you fill it up and you only pay for what you use. Likewise, with the bike, you're not paying for empty space to store it, you're paying for that bike. So um, we're not the same model as a traditional storage, so we're quite competitive. If you're going to store an entire, you know, uh, 12,000 square foot apartment, then traditional storage is probably the way to go. Chris, you've been looking at this. What do you think? Well, I see you describe it as cloud storage for your personal effects. So how does it actually cost uh, – what is the cost structure if someone gives a, a set of golf clubs to you and you say, I want to go golfing on Saturday morning? Okay, so we store – the monthly fee for the golf clubs is $150 um, and the delivery is $125. We pick up for free and then we deliver for a fee. So the idea is when you interact with it, that's charged. So the idea, again, is that uh, the um, delivery and the pickup is spread over the one fee. And how's it gone so far? Are many people taking up the service? We are. We're actually growing quite rapidly. Um, we've only the, the first month was slow. Going from concept to actually execution was slow and working out what we needed to do. But now that we're out there and we've, we've got our, our message on, on target for our customers, we're starting to get a good, good uh, take-up. Um, and there's definitely a need in Hong Kong. Living spaces are small. Uh, people are looking to store a few items as opposed to the traditional, I want to store my apartment. Yeah, you're, you're anticip- anticipating my next question. What is the on-demand economy? What's the on-demand economy? It's about getting things to people when they need it um, on their terms as opposed to on the traditional model of the company's terms. And that's what we're trying to do is allow our customers to be interactive with their items while regaining their space. I'm just curious, uh, who's your main competitor? Somebody must be doing this already. It seems like such a natural. Uh, you, you would think so. We're the first in Hong Kong. It's not It's not an original idea. Um, I you know, I came up with this. It's been finessed by researching. Uh, my understanding is the first company to do it was in New York. Now, we're the first in Hong Kong. I anticipate competition. Uh, but as of yet, where's yeah, us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got a nice long runway at the moment. I mean, it would seem a great business. How fast are you growing? What sort of um, you know, increase in revenues are you, see- are you seeing month by month? Oh, absolutely. Look, we're, we're seeing uh, and we want to accelerate this and we're about to uh, t- take on a, a more aggressive campaign, but we've been seeing 20 to 30% increase uh, month on month with very little in the terms of marketing. It's been word of mouth campaigns to make sure that the idea was, uh, was right for Hong Kong. That's been working. So we're now about to ramp up and, and now that we've got our, our model right, get out there and do some proper advertising and awareness campaigns. This is supposed to be Chris's interview, but I'm just too interested. <laughs> I have to ask you, are you making more on the logistics side or the storage side? Are they uh, completely separate? If I just wanted something brought to me, can you do that? Well, 
if if it's an item, yes. But in terms of the boxes, we do not. The boxes are sealed. Uh, you have an online inventory of what's in the boxes, and you can document what's in there through photography or, or text entry. We don't know what's in the box. We don't break open the boxes for privacy and for insurance. So, uh, for example, if you've got your child's teddy bear in a box, you will know that. I won't. And you tell me to bring box A back to you today because your kid's crying. We'll do that for you. Um, we've only opened the box uh, on two occasions, and that was when customers were leaving the country and we did a uh, forwarding service for them and took their boxes out of our plastic industrial ones and put them into shipping boxes. Uh, that saves them uh, space and, and cash. So what's the biggest item someone can store with you? Well, the biggest item we've had so far is a surfboard in terms of height. Right. So, okay, Saturday morning I, I ring you up and you deliver the surfboard or a bicycle or a set of golf clubs. Yep. Um, if, if that's what the customer wants, we're actually finding that people are tending to, when we talk to them, their, their aspirations are weekly usage. Um, it's less frequent than that. Why don't you branch out and do more, like take my car? Well, space is definitely – I know you need space, space is definitely somebody's going to pay for it. Uh, yeah, well, look, we're, we're actually making alliances with um, uh, the traditional storage companies because we see ourselves not in competition with them, but as a value add to to uh, to what they offer. And we're actually talking to some of those companies about uh, how we could utilize their space with our service and, and get a win-win for both of us. What's your biggest cost? I guess it's your delivery people, huh? Uh, delivery is a cost. Um, we break even on the delivery. We're not trying to gouge our customers on the delivery at all. Um, so, yeah, at the moment, delivery would be our, our largest cost, but I anticipate over time it will be, like everybody else, real estate. You mentioned that this idea started in New York. So if you were advising someone else who was looking at starting a business in Hong Kong, a new e-business, would you say better to stick with what's tried and true in another market or to kind of come up with a unique concept for Hong Kong? There's, there's no correct answer to that. The, uh, the thing about Hong Kong and that I found out, even though this was started in, in New York, the New York model would not work in Hong Kong. We've had to adapt uh, quite considerably. So, for example, we, uh, we have introduced book boxes um, because people store a lot of books and the traditional box was, you know, really heavy and, and too cumbersome. Um, people wanted to store a few boxes. So we had to try and innovate. People starting a new business should definitely do their research but not think that just because it's worked in another location that it's going to work in Hong Kong. They have to test. And I understand you had Stephen on before. He would have probably talked about the lean startup maybe. Um, you know, your minimum viable product, test it. Don't go to market with this is going to change the world. Um, test it with a few people and constantly iterate and make it what the market needs. So where do you store all this stuff? At the moment, we're in Tokwa One. Um, but we have the advantage that uh, where we are doesn't matter to our customers because we always come to them. Um, so we are looking at, at alternative locations as well as so we grow. So are you buying or leasing? Uh, we are, we're, we're leasing at the moment. Hmm. It, it brings to uh, mind a lot of the challenges. Um, I asked you about cost of delivery because uh, presumably you, you would have a lot there. You say you don't, you don't have a markup there, but um, are, what about those leasing costs and some of the other general hurdles that as a fresh startup you have to clear? 
there's lots of hurdles as a fresh startup. Um, most of them is the, the number one thing as a fresh startup is you think you understand what your business is going to be the day you start. It's completely different, and that that's quite surprising. <laughs> that's uh, a whole nother topic. Isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it really absolutely is. Yeah. And look, I I'm, I spent a lot of time researching and planning, and you know, all that planning was great. But the day I executed, it was a different story. In terms of the hurdles. Um, being able to scale quickly, test small and scale quickly is is a really important thing for an entrepreneur because you won't get it right the first time. We started purely doing golf clubs. Um, that was that was what we tested with, and the market wasn't huge. It was a desirable um, uh, product, but it wasn't scalable. Golf clubs don't take up that space. I mean, you can put it under your bed, really. So, I mean, I wouldn't have thought that. Uh, I'm amazed that you thought that that was something to build a business on. It was a start because it's desirability. I'm going to keep it in my trunk. I guess a lot of – not everybody has a car. Not though. everybody has a car. Well, you put it under the bed or, you know, you've got these mattresses. You're, you just – the bed pulls up and you shoot it under that. Absolutely. But the, the idea was that um, a lot of people these days are taking uh, – playing golf first thing in the morning and then off to work. So we looked at, well, maybe we can we can add that valet storage. And it was a daily storage thing. Well – return it to you at the end of the day. Now, we had um, a number of people that took up the service, but as we learned, we knew that there was something to do in the valet side. Uh, but as you say, golf was very small, and so we expanded out. Uh, and then we explored uh, women's clothing, you know, the summer exchanges. Um, we needed to build up trust. There's also a lot of costs associated with with um, uh, storing of clothing. So we uh, finally said, well, look, there's definitely this whole storage and valet thing happening. We know that there's something there. Why don't we go broad and work out what our customers want? So we, we, we tried our, our minimal viable product on little things, and then we went broad and really got our customers to tell us what they wanted. Um, and that's where we are today. What are you hearing? We're hearing good things. Most of our customers, um, it's quite random what they store. Uh, if I give an example, we have we have models that are working in Hong Kong who are always you know, young models that are on shoots all the time. They store their wardrobe effectively in a suitcase because when they get sent on assignment, they have to move locations for when they return. They have to pack everything up. They give us their suitcases. Uh, we've got people storing uh, work documents, you know, the traditional storage model, but they like the fact that we come whenever. Uh, we've got companies storing um, samples, product samples for uh, with us so that they get it out of their office. They see us as a bit of an arbitrage scenario where they reduce the costs of their, their rental, can put another person in there, get their stuff out of the office, and we bring it to them. Um, that wasn't something I'd anticipated when we started. We, we thought it would definitely be just consumer and not B2B. So meet me at the gym, bring my gym clothes. And by the way, when I'm done, go wash it for me too. Okay. We don't have a washing service yet. <laughs> yeah. But services. We, You're a services company. We one are day. services. That's actually one interesting day. that you raised that. We talked to the ice hockey uh, group over at um, um, Kowloon Bay. And that was one of the things that they've said, if you could do this, because, you know, they've got the, the men's locker room and, and the, uh, um, uh, one of the gentlemen said it would be great to make sure it, it smelt that's uh, better. Um, if and we're running out of space, can you can you help us? And we have explored that, but we haven't found a way to clean people's clothing yet. Quick, perhaps last question: Where did you get the, the funding to start up? I self-funded, um, having the luxury of uh, being in industry for over twenty years. I had uh, uh, some savings that I was able to. <laughs> I had a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. You didn't want to go quite that far, <laughs> but I w- I've 
and being able to, to self-fund. We started small, though, so we haven't overcommitted ourselves on anything. It's now that we know that the product is going to work that we're looking to scale up. Um, I'm not averse to, to investors, but we wanted to, to see what we could do ourselves. I would actually like to hear what was the biggest hurdle. What was the toughest thing you had to solve to get moving? Uh, the toughest thing I had to solve was was my own uh, personality, being in a corporate world for over 20 years and breaking out into something completely new and uncharted that I didn't have my skill set in, Do, severing my relationship with the corporate world and going out into the entrepreneurial world. That was the biggest challenge, actually waking up and saying, I quit and I'm going to do this. Wow. Okay, Mark, thanks very much. Uh, interesting because we get not only a profile of a small company like yours, but also the experience of a startup and uh, what some of the hurdles are. So thank you very much for joining us here on the program. Thank and many thanks me. to Chris Oliver as well. Mark Sims, Chief Executive Officer of Go and Live. This is Money for Nothing. I think we have time for one more story. Burger King has confirmed that it plans to buy Tim Hortons, the Canadian coffee and donut chain. It's 11 billion U.S. dollars or so. The deal will create the world's third largest fast food chain with some 18,000 restaurants in 100 countries. Peter Morici is an economist and business professor at the University of Maryland. He was asked if there was a downside for Tim Horton in this deal. Not really, because they continue to be a Canadian company with a Canadian brand and will do business as they always have. This is very important for Burger King because hamburgers are on the decline in the United States. As a consequence, the revenues of both McDonald's and Burger King are shrinking, and they need to get into other businesses. Burger King's agenda is to become like Yum Brands, which owns you know Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's got a, a portfolio of about six different restaurant companies that it takes around the world, and its real expertise is how to go around the world. And and that's what Burger King wants to become. The other thing to remember Burger King, unlike McDonald's, is Burger King is iconoclastic in the quality of its management. It is a very well-run company. And that is Peter Morici, an economist and business professor at the University of Maryland. Well, in a few other quick hits, banks may have become more reluctant to loan money because of pressure from rising non-performing loans. That from the Shanghai Security News this morning. China is to consider a hundred billion yuan fund for electric car chargers. So that's something that we'll be taking a closer look at tomorrow. And Taiwan says that Chinese military aircraft entered uh, the airspace of Taiwan. We'll wrap up with the weather today. Here's how it looks. A pretty nice day. Uh, expecting mostly uh, cloudy skies with some showers, but also some sunshine. And um, we'll be also uh, looking for showery conditions tomorrow. The showers then to taper off in the next few days. Maximum temperature day, 31 degrees. Thanks for listening. Morning Brew next. Radio free. This is Radio 3. Money for nothing from 8 to 9 o'clock.